hailstorms are among the costliest insured natural disasters that occur in Australia. It's quite surprising, therefore, that we don't have great observations or a deep understanding of hailstorm risk around Australia. Join us in just a moment as we chat to an early career researcher looking to solve this very problem. Welcome back to Boiling Point, the weekly science show on Eastside 89.7 FM. On the show today, it's your hosts, Hannah, Inna, Hello. and Elizabeth. Hello. Today, we're chatting to Isabel Greco. Isabel is a master's student at the Climate Change Research Centre at UNSW Sydney, who's aiming to improve our understanding of the probability of severe hail. Welcome to the show, Isabel. Thank you very much. Lovely to be here. So to start with, could you tell us a little bit about how hailstorms actually form? Yeah, sure can. So there's kind of like two parts to this problem. So the first thing we need is like a storm and then we kind of need the hail, right? That's how we get a hailstorm. So to get a storm, there are sort of three key ingredients. The first one is called CAPE, which sounds like a nice article of clothing, but it's actually like an acronym. So this one's called Convective Available Potential Energy, which sounds like super fancy, but essentially just means how much does air want to like go up? Like what is the propensity of air to start rising? Because that rising air is what feeds our storm. Once we've got rising air to sort of maintain a storm, we tend to need something called shear, which is the difference in wind speed between like the surface and generally about six kilometres up. And that shear helps our storm to rotate, which kind of stops the storm from like raining itself out. So it helps us get these longer storms, which then will help us with the hail. But remember that cape was just kind of like how much air wants to go up. Mm-hmm. So to actually get a storm going, we need to make the air start going up. Um, so we need like a lifting mechanism of some sort. And this is the bit that's like challenging to predict. Cape and shear are pretty easy to predict. You've probably got warnings on like your bomb app before and that's what they're based on. But I'm also sure you've got warnings and then no storm happened. And you're like, well, why did you tell me about all of this? And that, the problem there was the atmosphere looked super ready to have a storm, but nothing started lifting the air. Um, so that lifting mechanism might be mountains that like physically lift it, could be like a cold front, but those triggers are quite small and local scale and can be really tricky to predict, which is why storm warnings are still really challenging. Um, but anyway, so we have all that and we've got our storm, great, our air's lifted up, we've got this nice big updraft happening, our storm's probably rotating. So to get the actual hail, what happens is, if we think about a storm, we're quite high in the atmosphere, often we're above the freezing level. So most of the sort of water is frozen into ice, maybe around little dust particles in the air. But what happens sometimes is not all the water freezes. So we have what's called supercooled liquid water. Um, and it's not like water droplets, it's like sunnies and gangster signs. It's like <laughs> water that is below freezing, but still liquid somehow. And this is really important because as an ice particle collides with one of these water droplets, that water then might freeze onto the mm. ice particle. Ice particle gets a little bit bigger. Then it goes a bit more because there's this big updraft that's rising through the storm. So our ice particle goes a little bit higher, collides some more water that freezes. And over time, our ice particle gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Generally it'll just kind of like fall out at some point, right? Maybe it goes up if the updraft's not super strong or it gets blown off course and then it melts and falls as rain. But sometimes it might stay in the updraft for 10 minutes, 20 minutes, and over time it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger until eventually it's too heavy or blows out and then it falls down. So the hail doesn't actually have to, it doesn't take that long to get to a size where it could potentially fall out of the storm. Yeah, so it can fall out super early. A lot of our rain is probably melted ice, right? We only really start counting it as hail when it hits the ground at about five mils or bigger is when we start calling okay. it hail. So like half a centimetre is, is, is hail. Anything smaller that's still solid is not. Yeah, we call it grapple or grapple depending on accents. So it's like that's kind of like the weird slushy ice stuff that you might get in some storms, which is like 
annoying, but not hail. It's mm-hmm. not cool enough. So if once it gets to half a centimetre, we call it hail on the ground. Um, and once it gets more than about two centimetres, it's severe. And more than five centimetres, it's giant. And we're like taking photos and tweeting all our friends or Instagramming all our friends or whatever the cool kids do these days. Yeah, right. So you need updraft, sustained updraft. Yeah. You need the storm to sort of be have this shear and this rotation and yeah. you need the ice particles to be able to... Um, I guess grow to a size. Yeah, so the super cool liquid. To... Yeah, the super cool liquid water is really important there. Okay. If we've just got ice and there's nothing for it to collide with and melt with, we're not. It's yeah. just going to melt and become rain. And so, not all storms have this super cool liquid, then. Or... Yeah, the way it kind of works is like a lot of those rotating storms will do hail. Yeah. But not all those. Not all hail storms will be from these rotating storms. You okay. can get like much smaller storms that produce like a little bit of hail, but not very much, mm-hmm. or might just rain. Yeah, trying to work out what storms will and won't hail is a bit of a... That's why I have a job. Um, it's a bit of an open question. <laughs> yeah, okay. And so are there certain regions around the world that are more susceptible to hail storms? And if there are, where are they and why? Yeah, they're definitely it's definitely not uniform around the world. Um, over Argentina, there's a huge peak in hail. Um, up okay. through like Tornado Alley in the US, it's pretty big. It varies throughout Europe, even varies within Australia. Um, uh-huh. it's lots and lots of variability. It's... A lot of different reasons why it might vary. Mountains are a big thing. So Europe here, you can see on like the foothills of the Alps, there's a fair bit of hail. And then you go to the top of the Alps and there's like nothing. Because the Alps then lift the air up. So by the time you get to the top of the Alps, the storms kind of like died out. Right. Whereas on the foothills of the Alps, you might get a lot of hail. I know for Australia, we tend to get a lot of hail around the coasts because like sea breezes can provide really good ways to lift that air up and kick off a storm. Yeah. Which you might not get so much in the centre of Australia. And also you get moisture from the ocean. That's really important. Um, in Australia, so like our peak hail areas are kind of roughly, if you think of a map of Australia, between like Brisbane through to Sydney, that kind of coast area is where we see most of our hail. But we see it like Canberra gets hail, Melbourne gets hail, Adelaide gets hail, Perth gets hail. Pretty rare in the tropics though. Um, most of our storms there, they can't quite, ro- they can't organise. So you get like the updraft and you get these like big rain events but they lack the sort of shear and the rotation to really become this big organised storm that can generate massive hail. So yeah. it tends to be sort of below the tropics or above the tropics if you're in the northern hemisphere. Okay, cool. And what can determ- determine how big the hail will become? Because I know some of the particles are pretty small, but some like are huge ice balls, I guess. And 100%. Like- That's a really good question. And it's not exactly one we know the answer to. Like, from a process-based perspective, it's got to do with, like, okay, we need a really strong updraft that can maintain a storm, and that rotation helps keep a storm going long enough to keep the updraft. But as far as, like, picking out which storms, or, like, looking at a storm or looking at radar and saying, oh, yeah, that'll be a 10-centimeter hail, yeah, that's definitely an open question. Mm. Um, We don't really have a good answer to that. So you also cannot predict when, like, the big hail will drop and, like tell people to be safe we're trying that's, that's <laughs> run for cover yeah, yeah. We, we definitely try but it's yeah a really really challenging problem mm-hmm. because like obviously it's just really like part of the limit why we don't know is because it's really hard to get up close to a hailstorm and look at what's going on inside there have been some really amazing people who just flew planes through hailstorms mm. for like oh, wow. nasa and stuff which is insane right it blows my mind i listened to like a, pers- a pilot who used to do it talk and they're like oh yeah you just have to kind of like Get down below the windshield sometimes in case something came through and you're just oh. like, what? Like, I don't... Uh, 
So funnily enough, we don't really do that anymore. So it's really hard to know what's going on inside a hailstone. There's some really cool research where they get fallen hailstones and start like slicing them up. Do you they can have see like the kind lights. of tree rings? Exactly, wow. exactly. So you can start, especially the larger ones, really start seeing these growth layers and try and make some inferences about you know what how fast they might be going. Or? Yeah, kind of how fast. Like you can look at like the growth regimes. There's like wet growth and dry growth. It has to do with the sort of water content of the storm and the sort of storm environment. You can try and unpack that and then there's people doing modeling studies of all the microphysics so the really small scale physics but definitely we still have a lot to understand about the actual processes that make the big hail which is kind of why we're trying statistical routes to answer mm-hmm. that question of well how do we know in advance if it's big or not and, and that's my work <laughs> and just before we jump no, into go, what go, your go. research is so how common are these really severe hailstorm events so there was this infamous hailstorm over sydney in 1999 that dropped hailstones that were apparently larger than 11 centimetres in diameter, Hundreds. which I find mind-bogglingly large. But I assume that they're not that common, those yeah. really severe ones. Before I answer the question, can I blow your mind a little bit more and say yes. 11 centimetres isn't even the Australian record for the it's biggest not. tail? No, what no, is the it's record? not. Um, so the well, biggest one on record that we know of, so this is kind of post-colonisation. There was obviously hail before yeah. um, we colonised. We just did a really good job at ignoring those records. So post-colonisation, our biggest hailstone on record was, I think, about 16 centimetres. 16. Yeah, so they're not spherical at this point. So don't imagine like like a... half a ruler. Yeah, exactly right. Half a ruler. But don't imagine like a ball shape. Imagine much more of like a quite an oblong shape. So kind of more of, not quite a cylinder, but like kind of think a cylinder, like all these like weird like spiky bits because it's rotating as it falls. Uh, So the water's freezing along mm. these kind of axes of rotation, which are really, it's almost spiky and a bit longer. But yeah, that's our longest one. Wow. Or biggest one. We really need ways to predict. <laughs> when, yeah. yeah, I do, right? And um, so, the, and so they're not common though. They're really no, they're pretty. Okay. Yeah, not going to happen all the time. Maybe like you know, I I'm really wary of saying something and then someone quoting me on this. Um, so bearing in mind all the uncertainty, probably every like couple of years okay. in like Australia, like yeah. we tend to get a bigish one every so often. Like yeah, every mm-hmm. year, every couple of years. And you were saying earlier on that it's quite hard to tell what's happening inside a hailstorm. What are the ways that we can, when I say we, I mean like the Bureau of Meteorology, (laughs) not us here in this room. Oh, 100%. We're going to go. (laughs) What are the ways that we can measure hail at the moment and what are some of the problems with those? Yeah, that's a really good question. And there are some really, really creative approaches to that. Mm -hmm. So kind of, I guess we can think about measuring like the storm as it happens then kind of looking at it afterwards as well. So as far as looking at the storm as it's happening, most of our stuff, just because we can't get in close has mm-hmm. to be all sort of like remote sensing so maybe we have a radar set up mm-hmm. or maybe something in space um so there's some really cool like radar observations um so we're sending out we're looking at essentially reflectivity because water ice all of that reflects quite a lot so we can see it coming from radar um an experienced meteorologist can sort of start telling us things about storm dynamics that they might observe from that they can sort of be like oh that you know we don't have a lot of echo that might be an updraft that might be there's a you know I will admit this bit is where my knowledge starts getting a little bit weaker, but there's a lot you can, a lot we don't, a lot radar can't tell us, but there's still a lot radar can tell us yeah. um, that we can learn about storms more generally as well as hailstorms. Um, and the other thing is some satellite products are starting to be developed, um, which aren't perfect, but can be really, really mm-hmm. cool. But the problem, I guess, of a lot of these things is it's really hard to relate to these things measured from really far away to hail actually at the ground, right? If I'm looking at my radar, maybe it's kilometres away from the storm. How does that tell me about what hail size is in your backyard? 
Hence why citizen science and reports and people really getting into the field either sort of during or just after a hailstorm is super valuable. So there's been some really cool and interesting approaches. One of my favourites is when a hailstorm, I think, I want to say the 2021-2022, um, went over Brisbane um, in an area that was quite, a lot of, had a lot of rooftop solar uptake. And there was 10 centimetre hailstones there, which oh. obviously the solar panels didn't really agree with. Yeah. But what they started doing was flying a drone over afterwards, getting pictures of all these solar panels and using them to understand more about the storm dynamics because it's really easy to see, well, okay, three hailstones of about this diameter hit that solar panel, but the next suburb there were 10, but they were smaller, whatever yeah. it happens to be, um, which is really awesome. Some places have like hail pads where you put out either there's like automatic ones which like vibrate and there's a microphone that records the vibrations. And, and it can tell the difference between the hail and, and rain. Um, hail pads so depends so the automatic ones i believe so because like Mm -hmm. hail is a fair bit heavier and it's bigger so it's you know different kind of impact and the older ones which are styrofoam you know like styrofoam and you like press your fingers into it like the dents like stay Mm -hmm. there yeah yeah. Um, hail does that and then we paint over it so you get this like black and white image almost where like all the hailstone indents come off as white Mm -hmm. so that's what a hail pad is yeah that's that's ah. so the newer ones are automatic but yeah the older ones they'll paint it and then they would scan it and you'd get sort of hail information out of that as well Um, (laughs) that's cool so there's lots of yeah super innovative ways of us trying to understand well what what happened how can we get a sense of what's going on you mentioned about citizen science earlier can you tell us a bit about that so people can actually report yeah i will admit at the moment it's a bit of a weird state but definitely um in the past in australia we've had people who report hail who will say oh okay i saw hail you know in my backyard in this city and it was about this time and i think it was this big which is really really cool at the moment it's a little bit challenging to report. There's an app called WeatherX, if you'd like to give it a shot, um, and it's for lots of different severe weather stuff, not just hail, which is really cool. And researchers will look at that and try and unpack what's going on. Um, different places around the world have different ways of doing it. Australia's archive goes back to, I think, the first one's like 1790-something or other. Mm-hmm. And it's really interesting because you can see how the way we just measure things changes even. So the first, all the earlier reports are like, oh, it was pigeon egg sized, it was chicken egg sized, it was emu egg sized. And the later ones are like cricket ball sized, tennis ball sized, golf ball sized, which always kind of blows my mind. But yeah, people, if you're interested, it's WebEx if you want to have a crack. I have a weird question and it's also a throwback to Hannah's episode. Mm. Go listen. Um, can you train birds <laughs> to fly into storms and like and attach <laughs> Attach a device to their backs. Um, and the reason, the reason I'm asking because Hannah mentioned that seals, uh, you can attach like a device Sensors, to a seal. Yeah, yeah and, then, and then measure ocean currents. So I'm just like asking. Imagine the uh, ethics approval. Yeah, I would probably say no, just because they're very high wind environments. Not mm-hmm. only do you have falling balls of ice, you have falling balls of ice. <laughs> it's very, very windy. And I think most self-respecting birds would not be super keen mm-hmm. on doing that. Okay. If anyone can, like, I'd kind of love to be proved wrong. I'd be very curious to be proved wrong. But as far as I'm aware, no one's tried that one just yet. We tend to send the humans because we're silly enough to go and chase storms. Birds tend to be a bit Yeah, smarter. fair enough. Yeah. I, I want to protect the birds. We do want to protect the birds. Yeah. Birds have enough problems with deforestation without us being like, now fly into a hailstorm. Yeah. So turning specifically to the research you're doing in your master's, Isabel, can you tell us a bit about what exactly you're looking at and why? Yeah. So I look a little bit more at the whole radar problem, which I mentioned before. So essentially with radar, 
right? Think about so we think about a storm. We got the, like lots of wind and lots of sort of particles of water and ice flying around. So what happens if like radar is looking at that storm? Are we going to get stuff reflecting back at us, which is good. That's useful. But would that look different if the storm is, has a lot of liquid water, a lot of ice, a lot of big hail, a lot of small hail? Like it's really challenging to separate these cases, which based just on reflectivity can look quite similar. So there's a couple, I mean, I'm not the first person to notice this is an issue. Um, there's a lot of really interesting previous work where they try and derive ways of like manipulating these radar reflectivities to understand how that links to hail at the surface. One of the most popular products is called MESH, which stands for Maximum Expected Size of Hail um, and tells us very little about the maximum expected size of hail, <laughs> but isn't actually too bad for indicating whether or not there is hail. Um, that's probably the most popular product, what we use operationally. At the well, I say we like I do it, um, what forecasters use operationally at the Bureau of Meteorology. But the way we un- interpret it really often ignores the uncertainty in it. We tend to sort of whack on a threshold and say, okay, if mesh is bigger than three centimetres, it's hail, and if it's smaller, it's not which my background's in maths. And I saw that and was like, but there's so much uncertainty. Mm. But like, what's the difference between like, you know, 3.1 and 2.9, hey? Like, the storms are probably really quite similar, but all of a sudden we're treating one in a very different way to the other. Particularly even if we're doing like research and trying to understand, oh, okay, well, historically, what's been a hail day and what hasn't? We tend to just whack these thresholds on and not think too much about it. Forecasters will obviously be looking at storm dynamics and the surrounding environment and trying to make a decision, but particularly in the sort of, climatological, oh, okay, a hailstorm's getting more or less frequent, where, where are hail events or insurance or trying to price their policies, we really tend to treat these thresholds as kind of like these magic numbers. So my work tries to say, treat it a little bit differently and say, well, what if we saw this as kind of a probability? What if we said when mesh is small, it's probably less likely to be hail, and when it's big, it's quite likely, and in the middle, there's kind of a gradient between the two, which is all well and good. We have like machine learning for this stuff. Then the question is, well, to do machine learning, you need data. And we don't actually know sort of when every single radar image we have links to hail on the ground, right? Because we only really know if hail hits the ground if, like, someone tells us, if we observe it in some way. So it's like, right, okay, we do have reports, people tell us, but there's kind of two problems with reports. The first one is no one reports non-hail. Like, no one goes and tells the Bureau, by the way, just thought I'd tell you it's nice and sunny over here in Randwick today. <laughs> like, no, one, no one's going to do that. Like, why would you do that? Why would anyone waste their time? So we don't have reports of non-hail, and also we don't report every single hail, right? Like, even if you are a storm watcher and it's, like, tiny hail, you're going to be like, eh, no, whatever, I won't, yeah. well, I won't bother. Or even, I'm sleeping, it was 11pm. Um, so, Or even the hailstorm fell in the middle of nowhere and I could not be bothered driving three hours to get there. Yeah. So all our reports are super biased by, like, where people are and how interested they are. Um, so you can see, super, like, you know, there's a real pickup in, like, the 80s when storm watching got more popular in Australia. All of a sudden we get more reports. And it's not because hail got more frequent, we don't think. It's just because yeah. all of a sudden people were telling, talking about hail a lot more. So then it's trying to use those reports with their biases to try and deal with the radar and its biases. And my research is kind of fiddling with the maths to try and make that all And to try nicely. and basically improve our understanding of yeah. when we're getting hail and when we're yeah. not. Yeah, and also just understand how uncertain we are. Like, if the result is, okay, we actually really are super uncertain, that's useful to know. Like, it's a suckish result. Like, it's not super, you know, it's not a very, like, glamorous result. But if our result is we just really don't know and we need to be more aware of that we don't know, that's still kind of useful if we think about pricing insurance. Yeah. Um, or just assessing risk as far as, okay, should we build a solar farm here? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, just good fun. So you mentioned radar. Can you tell us what exactly radar is? How, yeah. Good question. Um, and one I sort of 
figure, but I only learned the answer to comparatively recently. So think of radar as kind of just like, all we're doing is measuring reflectivity. We send out like electromagnetic radiation, so like radio waves and stuff like that, and it reflects back. Um, and we pick sort of specific wavelengths that help, that sort of won't really get reflected much off of things like cloud droplets, because we don't really want to see clouds. We've got eyes for that. We can look at the clouds. What we want to see are like larger particles, things like water droplets, which could be rain or hail. So we'll reflect off these bigger particles back to us. It's really cool data. It's kind of challenging to use. So if we think about radar, we're generally like on a mountain and we're sending it out in all directions um, and it sort of spreads out over time. So you've got these kind of weird spherical data almost. Um, so it can be a little bit weird. And also not all things that reflect are things we're interested in. Like in sort of long term, if you sort of start aggregating radar reflectivities over a long period of time, often things like flight paths will start lighting up because planes are quite reflective. Um, ah. You can sometimes see big groups of insects, like sort of locusts, mm-hmm. if there's like that sort of issue. Sometimes off the ocean, get just clutter from the spray. So there's a lot of really awesome science and work that has to go into sort of processing radar data, so it can be useful. Can you, so you can extract the hail signature, I guess. Yeah, or even just rain. Um, right. And even being like, oh, okay, we've got this reflectivity. How heavy is it raining? Like, that's mm-hmm. also not entirely obvious, right? Reflectivity doesn't automatically say, okay, now that means five mils of rain today. Like, that kind of conversion is also something that people have to do. And so how many of these radar instruments do we have around Australia? Like, are they everywhere or is it just in some locations? Really good question. And it's a really good point. Oh, I'm going to forget the exact number now that you asked me, aren't I? It's a fair few. I'm going to say like of the order of 60 with like plus or minus some error for Isabel forgetting the number exactly, (laughs) which sounds like a lot, but also for our land area, it's not that much. So we're pretty sparsely covered. Our cities are pretty well covered. But, yeah, definitely, like, the centre of Australia are more rural areas of, like, yeah, barely covered at all. And do you generate those, like, barometric maps with the data you get from radars? Like, I, I just, I guess I what I imagine is those things you see on a weather forecast where you see, like, this huge cloud of of Rain. a storm or, like, something coming in. And, like, is it something that is generated by the radar and then... How do you get all the colors and what do <laughs> yeah, the colors no, mean? Good question. Depends on which maps you mean. So you mean the ones with like the lows and the highs and the fronts, or do you mean like the ones where you might see a rain band coming through? And maybe a rain band. Yeah. So those ones are climate models, which is a whole different kettle of fish, which I'm sure this podcast either has or will cover. Um, but yeah, the rain band ones would be coming from radar. So you'd be getting things like reflectivity, especially if it's past rain. Future rain's a little bit different, but past rain, definitely be getting things like reflectivity, applying some kind of algorithm, so a set of rules, a set of maths operations to it, and then from that, getting an estimate of what the rain rate might be. Um, and then maybe, you'll see it on the bomb map now, they've put in like a little extrapolation thing, so you might be able to see past rain, it'll look quite really clear and detailed, and then future rain gets a bit blobby and unusual, mm-hmm. and that's because it's trying to extrapolate and deal with that uncertainty of, we don't quite know exactly what will happen. So, so when I um, look at like go to the Bureau of Meteorology website and look at the radar for, um, I think it's Terry Hills or something. Yeah. When I'm like, do I have time to cycle home from uni before the rain comes? Is yeah. that the same radar that you're? It's definitely about the same hail. kind of radar. Okay. Yeah. So I, that's ah. the rain rate product. So I yeah. look at Mesh, which is yeah. a different product, but that's and I look at in Brisbane normally. Same kind of instrument. Exactly yeah. the same kind of instrument. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Good cool. pickup. Yeah. So in your research, you focus on the Brisbane region specifically. Yeah. Is there a reason for that? Like, yes, and it's mostly pragmatic. Okay. Um, so we needed to, like, my method is essentially we need radar data and we need reports. 
Um, and so for that, you kind of need... And we also want actual, like, hail days and stuff. So yeah. for that, you need to be in an area with a fair few people, so cities, because mm-hmm. uh, you don't. we don't get a lot of... I mean, we get some, but not a lot of reports in more rural areas just because there are less people. And you also need to be generally sort of, yeah, along that stretch on the East Coast where we get the most hail. Brisbane fit the bill and they've got a nice radar. And it's also be starting... There's some really awesome work done by some other scientists around, like, the processes at play in that area that could be leading to hail and what they interpret how they interpret radar which would give us some good comparisons to say okay this is what i got with this method how different is it to how we normally interpret radar and how does this sit with our understanding of you know how sea breezes for example influence storms so it was kind of had a lot of had some previous work had the Mm -hmm. data we needed and also is super relevant brisbane's our third biggest city if we can say something useful about that area that's Hopefully it'll be useful to people. When yeah, yeah, definitely. It's a good mix of all the things you sort of need. Yeah, it was just it was pragmatic. Sydney probably would have also worked pretty well, but I think Brisbane had slightly more reports, so we decided to start there. Okay, more more storm chasers. <laughs> yeah, they get a lot of they get a fair few hail, a fair bit of hail up there. The right. big, the really big hailstorm was not was north of Brisbane. Yeah. Okay. So do you get more hailstorms in cities because of I guess the sky or like skyscrapers and elevations Ooh. or? Um, or is it just because they're all coastal? Or maybe it's just because of the records and we have a bias. coastal. And I think it's more that bias. Like, I've, I use it in presentations. You can plot the number of reports you get in diff, like over time in Australia, like, over, like aggregated over time in Australia, and you can plot our population density. And without titles, those two plots look very similar. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I think it's like, I think there's a lot of different biases in our sort of that like cause problems of reports, but like the biggest one is definitely population. They're just like, if it's somewhere where no one is, it's like the whole of the tree falls in a forest doesn't make a sound. Like, yeah. if hail falls somewhere where no one sees it, do we know about it? Like, really, no. Nope. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't happen. <laughs> yeah, well, like, how are we meant to know? Especially yeah. if there's no radar then, then we really have no idea. Maybe yeah. a satellite might pick it up. But It's kind of looking. fascinating to think maybe there is a lot, a lot of hailstorms happening in areas that just not many people living and we just Yeah, don't know it's a real challenge, especially because a lot of our proxies weren't designed for Australia. So, like, one of the works on the work my supervisor does looks at designing a hail proxy specifically for Australia. And there's this area in the north of Australia that keeps popping up as it should be a fair bit of hail, but it's very sparsely populated and we haven't don't have any reports. So we just look at it and we're like, and maybe yes. And so what's a proxy, just quickly? Oh, no, great question. Thank you for calling me out. <laughs> proxy is just anything that we use to sort of try and be our best guess for something when we can't observe it directly. Okay. Um, so, so it's not hail, a direct observation. Then. Yeah, so for proxy, we might be saying, oh, okay, I mentioned CAFE and SHEAR, like, right back at the start. We might get them from, like, a model and then use that to say, well, in these days, the atmosphere was kind of prone for hail. So we're going to take this right. as a bit of an estimate of when there might be hail. Got it. Do you see an increase in frequency, frequency of hail in the last, I guess, decades from climate change? Or, um, yeah, how might they hailstorms change that's in the a big question that no one's quite sure of just yet from yeah. like a process i keep saying i feel like i've said this too many times from a process perspective we expect that climate change well climate change will like atmosphere warmer um and warmer atmospheres will hold more water so we're going to get a bit wetter which will sort of increase that willingness of air to rise that cape that should increase in a warmer climate and we're sort of seeing we're seeing that in models and measurements Mm-hmm. Um, shear, we don't really know what that's going to do in a warmer climate. But what will also happen is because the climate's warmer, um, that melting level where hail starts melting as it falls will get a little bit higher because the whole atmosphere is going to be a bit warmer. So we expect that there'll be more melting. So we're going to have more cape, which could be more storms, but we're also going to have more melting associated with those storms. 
So right. they're kind of these two effects in opposite directions. So we might get more hail, but that hail might melt more. So the general conclusion from that that people tend to draw is, well, we'll probably get a little bit less hail, but the hail we do get is going to be bigger because only the bigger stuff will fall fast enough to right. not melt on the way down. Oh, no. But that's we don't have the observations to sort of yeah. really be confident in that. Just So with your research, um, what is the kind of end ideal end goal like would you want to develop some kind of predictive tool or what yeah, yeah. What great question sort of- my like let's suppose i had decades to do this research would be really kind of developing a really robust proxy for hail so a really robust way of us turning observations into a really good sense of what might happen with hail on the ground and ideally in a way that we can apply over australia um so without mm-hmm. having to be constrained by where our radars are do I think I'll achieve that by the end of my master's? No way in hell. For now, what would be really cool would be to sort of end up with a really good model that we could use with radar, at least over Brisbane, and maybe its surrounding areas, so a really good way of interpreting that radar that maybe, and also this method that other people could apply, because the method itself is just maths. Math doesn't care where you use it. Yeah. So hopefully a method that we can use to think about how we use these reports, which are so valuable, but still flawed. Because mm-hmm. um, at the moment, the way we use them is we either kind of ignore those biases, or we just don't use them um, and we rely on radar as our best truth, which we know it's flawed. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think if we could, I'd really, really, I guess, hopeful that this research could enable us to have a method to use those reports a little bit better. Sounds like it'd be really useful for a range of people. I hope so. <laughs> and even like, I don't know, I like to think it'd be useful even beyond climate, right? Because there are a lot of other situations where we only report like some of the events that happen. I don't know, maybe it's a little egotistical, but I'd like to think that this kind of work could be useful beyond just climate as well. Yeah, interesting. Um, And maybe I want to go back again for the climate change stuff. Mm. And I know you said that there is a lot of uncertainty about how climate change will affect hail, but like the idea of hail getting bigger (laughs) is a bit scary to me. And like, I, I guess my question is like, can we prepare better, I don't know, our homes or like, are there any stuff that is already in process of like, I don't know, reinforcing our roofs? No, or... that's a really, really good question. Um, To the best of my knowledge, Australia doesn't actually have any regulation around how our roofs should be set up for hail. Um, please, I'd love to be corrected, but to the best of my knowledge, that legislation just doesn't exist. Whereas in a lot of places in the US and Canada, um, they do have legislation around like shingles and ha- what they have to look like, particularly in areas that are quite hail prone. So thinking like Tornado Alley um, and stuff like that. Um, so, I mean, depends, I guess, how much bigger the hail gets, right? If it really does get bigger to a certain point, like I think that would definitely be something we could do. Um, they have, from like a delving back into like the science, they have these really cool, they're called like aging farms, where they look at how the age of shingles like affects like their propensity to break mm. under hail to really try and understand how, when we need to update roofs and how we should price our insurance of these roofs, um, where they're literally just like put bits of roof outside for 10 years and then blast <laughs> fake hail at it. <laughs> And then see what happens, which I just love the idea of. <laughs> a retirement <Yeah>. plan. <laughs> yeah, so there's like lots of fun things to do to deal with um, that problem. But yeah, no, definitely there are, we can, there are, it is possible to set standards on like stronger roofs. And even I think what will be really relevant for Australia will be our, our solar panels. Um, mm-hmm, we've got, mm-hmm. I think about one in three Australian homes now have rooftop solar, which is awesome. And we should continue Amazing to decarbonize. Uptake, yeah. yeah. And it's one of the, I think it is really right up there with one of the best in the world, but it really sucks if a hailstorm comes over that, especially if it's like most hail panels can deal with smaller hail, but not with like the really massive yeah. stuff. 
So definitely, I think we might have to have a think about well, what, how do we need to innovate our solar panels in certain areas of the world? Like if you're in Argentina, where there's some really massive hail and it's fairly common, well, okay, maybe the solar panels we use in the of Australia wouldn't be the same as long as we put yeah. over Argentina, for example. Yeah, I would never have thought about that, actually. Like, the solar panels being damaged. I yeah. would just think, oh, glass smashing, maybe the roofs, yeah. cars. Yeah, and a big thing. Such a good point. Yeah, especially, I mean, it was a great way for someone to do some research, but yeah, not <laughs> ideal for those homeowners. And it's a really expensive one to replace yeah. as well. Yeah. And you said you have a background in mathematics, but yes. like, how how hell out of all <laughs> subjects? I It's fascinating, but like, I would never be like, oh. Yeah, I want to research hell, so yeah, no, how did you get that? A, a really valid question. I would love to be able to be like, oh, I had this deep, profound experience with hail, but um, sadly I didn't. <laughs> I don't know, maybe happily I didn't. I don't know. Um, essentially, I got to the end of my maths degree and was like, hmm, that was really fun. I love maths. I still love maths. But like, climate change sucks. I want to do something about this. This is a you know really bad problem. And a friend was like, well, have you heard of this climate change research centre at UNSW? And I was like, no, I haven't. And then ended up chatting to my current supervisor who was like, you should do this project on like using climate models to make them more local. It's called downscaling. And I was like, I have no idea what this is, but this sounds fun, I'm sure. And then we're kind of doing all the paperwork. And then he was like, actually, that sounds too hard for a master's. I don't think we have enough time. Do hail instead. I was just kind of like, I've gotten this far. Sure, let's do hail. <laughs> um, so kind of shell into it a little bit. Um, but it's been... Yeah, I don't know what exactly I expected I was going to be doing or learning, but it's been really good. It's been really fun. It's been really interesting. There's a lot to know. Yeah, I've learned a lot about hail (laughs) on this episode. So, what is your favourite hail pun? Oh, you can't ask me to choose a favourite. It's like choosing a favourite child. Liz, don't do this to me. Too bad. Oh. Oh. I think one of my favourites is like just titling presentations of like what the hail is going on because it's a valid question that we don't fully know the answer to and it pretty accurately describes my work. So that's probably my favourite. Very appropriate. I approve. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I'm glad. Well, thanks for coming on the show, Isabel. It's been fascinating to learn about hailstorms. I've certainly learnt a lot. To round out the show, do you have any advice for young and aspiring scientists? Oh, that's a question. I still feel like I'm kind of a young and aspiring scientist. I don't, <laughs> what <laughs> advice would you like to give yourself? Give <laughs> myself. Um, maybe you should make a bed. No. Uh, what advice would I like to give to young scientists? Okay, thinking a little bit younger than myself, I think it's just knowing that you don't need to have a plan necessarily. I did not have a plan to research hail. It's still been great. Um, just like keep following things uh, you enjoy and that bring you joy and you'll probably find yourself somewhere you'll be very excited to be. Yeah, I love that take. I love that perspective mm-hmm. on it. That's really cool. Great advice. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for being our guest on the show today, Isabel. No, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. This was Boiling Point, the weekly science show in Eastside 89.7 FM. We'll be back with a new science story next week. Bye for now. Bye.